everyone, this is Sarah McFarland from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today's episode of Expert Answers features Dr. Christopher West from the University of British Columbia, who recently joined us for the first webinar in the Cardiovascular Connection series, a joint webinar series brought to you by Inside Scientific and the American Physiological Society. His presentation discussed the cardiovascular and autonomic changes that occur following spinal cord injury, as well as the efficacy of neurotherapeutic interventions. Let's jump in. Okay, so the first question here is, have you evaluated functional slash physical changes in the intracardiac nervous system? Yeah, that's a really fascinating question and one that um, certainly there's some really interesting research coming actually out of Italy that has shown that the sympathetic nervous system plays a really important role in tuning cardiomyocytes and and that has been of interest to me. Um, I have not done that as of yet, but it's a fascinating area. To my knowledge, no one has looked at that in the setting of spinal cord injury or indeed following any injury to the central nervous system. I think the only research on that has been where studies have pharmacologically blocked the sympathetic nervous system to look at that. But yeah, absolutely on the list of things to do. So really great question. Awesome. Next question here is with spinal cord injury and loss of central sympathetic drive, have you assessed a rhythmic potential in your models? Yeah, so we have looked at arrhythmias and there certainly is many other studies that have shown that spinal cord injury is associated with many different forms of arrhythmia. It's also been shown that if you give sympathoagonists that there is an increased prevalence of arrhythmia. We've also used telemetry devices to look at circadian rhythms, which is potentially where this question is asking as well. And what we tend to find is that when injury is high, both in individuals and in fact in our rodent model, circadian rhythms, at least in things like heart rate, body temperature and blood pressure are lost. Interestingly, in the rat model, some of those appear to come back. But I'm not yet aware of any studies, you know, many of those are thought to be linked to changes in sympathetic nerve activity. And I'm not aware of any studies yet that have utilized long-term awake measures of telemetry to measure sympathetic nerve activity and look for circadian oscillations in that too. But but certainly, yes, and in in people from 24-hour blood pressure and heart rate recordings, we do know that when the injury is up in the cervical cord, there is a loss of circadian rhythms. Okay, fantastic. The next question here, I think we'll kind of branch off of that a little bit. This person has asked, is there any consideration for using rodent models for spinal cord injury, cardiovascular assessments, given that rodents are tend to be more sympathetically driven than large animals and humans, which are more parasympathetically driven? Yeah. And, you know, this has always been on the back of my mind and partly some of the limitations. It's it's obviously not just in autonomic balance. It's also in size of the heart as well. And even just in, you know, heart rate versus stroke body relationships in the rat the heart is beating in our studies around 450 times a minute that's clearly not the case in humans and so this was really what stimulated a collaboration with dr brian kwan he had had this pig model of low thoracic injury to look at motor and sensory outcomes 
But of course, as, as many people on this line know, the pig is also a fantastic model for the cardiovascular system as well. And so that was part of what prompted the move to do some of the research in the pig model as well. I will say that at least from the data we've collected, the magnitude of reduction in things like cardiac volumes and pressure volume related indices actually appears pretty similar across both rats and pigs, which gives us some confidence in at least extrapolating some of those functional measures across. But the point absolutely holds. And, and we've certainly seen that when we've been doing some blockades on both just the parasympathetic and sympathetic side of things. So it's definitely a consideration to put it into perspective. If we want to run a pig study and the way we do that at UBC through our Center for Comparative Medicine, it, it costs us about $10,000 a day to do those studies. So utilizing the large animal model, and there's definitely some more ethical considerations with, with continuing to use large animal models as well. So now we've shown kind of this similar reduction across both. We tend to use the small animals for a lot of our long-term studies, just from a, a cost and ethics perspective, and really save the large animal work for the more clinically relevant questions, such as the hemodynamic management question, where we can also instrument the spinal cord as well as the, the cardiovascular system. So always a consideration. And yes, absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for that answer. Next question here. What was the quote unquote dosage of hypoxia that was used in the study that you mentioned about intermittent hypoxia? Yeah. So the, the one we've settled on and we've tested a few different ones. So I, I don't know if you're familiar on the spinal cord injury side or the sleep apnea side of things, but we've settled on 10 episodes of one minute of uh, hypoxia, which is delivered at 10% fraction of inspired oxygen interspersed. We actually interspersed with 100% oxygen in our anesthetized preparations. We are now doing some long-term work with intermittent hypoxia. That's some of the work from at least our PhD student in the lab. And there we do a similar protocol, but rather than interspersing with 100% O2, we're interspersing with Romare O2. We have tried some of the other protocols in spinal cord injury, one of the most common protocols is a three by five minute. But in our level of injury model, the animals don't do too well on that from a blood pressure perspective. It causes really profound reductions in blood pressure. And we certainly steer clear of the more um, severe hypoxia with many exposures like they use in the sleep apnea field. So kind of somewhere in between those two models, 10 by one minute of 10% fraction of inspired O2. I should say as well that we do collect arterial blood samples throughout and run arterial blood gas analysis. So we are careful to make sure our carbon dioxide is staying consistent throughout the exposure and into the post-hypoxia recovery period as well. Fantastic. Thanks for clarifying that. Next question here. For your pressure volume data collection, have you done any work on the right side of the heart? And what mm. effects have you seen there in terms of contractility? That's a really great question. And uh, a shout out to anyone here that is developing technology on this side of things is it can be really challenging to do right-sided pressure volume loops in a closed chest approach. What I mean by a closed chest approach is keeping the thoracic cavity closed. So for all of our measures, we go in through the carotid artery and down into the LV. We have done some right-sided pressure volume loops. And in fact, one of my 
PhD students presented some work at experimental biology doing biventricular pressure volume loops where we get PV loops from the right and left side of the heart synchronously. I will say getting the right-sided pressure volume loops is quite a challenge. It tends to work better in scenarios where the right ventricle becomes dilated. In ours, the right ventricle is becoming smaller. We've not yet got anywhere near a sufficient amount of animals with spinal cord injury on the right side of the heart to be able to answer that question. I will say we've looked histologically at the cardiomyocytes on the right side of the heart, and we see a similar degree of atrophy on the right versus the left side. So we suspect that what is happening on the left is happening on the right, but we're trying to get to that answer. We haven't yet done open chest pressure volume loops because... There are also changes in lung function and pulmonary pressures after injury, and we try our best to maintain those around the heart to keep things as, I guess, physiologically as possible. But yeah, really fantastic question. Awesome. So I have two questions to follow up. One is about cardiomyocytes and one is about lung function. So the first one is, do you measure lung function in this model? We have not measured lung function in this model. I would have no reason to believe that you get much of a reduction in lung function with this model. The diaphragm certainly is very well preserved. I'm assuming, I mean, in the rat model, we've not done it in the rat model. The expiratory muscles, of course, will have lost supraspinal control. But again, from a lung function perspective, most rat studies use a cervical hemisection model to look at lung function responses. I do believe some people have tried this with a similar high thoracic model, but there wasn't really any marked reductions in lung function. Interestingly, on the human side of things, where I've measured lung function a lot in individuals with cervical spinal cord injury, we do see quite a profound reduction in vital capacity. Total lung capacity tends to be actually relatively well preserved. So it's really anywhere where there's an expiratory, where expiration contributes to the measurement of lung function. So things like vital capacity, expiratory mouth pressures, or expiratory reserve volume are all really compromised in individuals with cervical spinal cord injury. And that reduction in lung function actually has some really interesting effects from a heart-lung perspective. And certainly we've been looking at ways on the human side of things to be able to manipulate the respiratory system through changing pressures to be able to promote left ventricular function as well. So yeah, really great set of questions. It's not something we routinely look look at in the rat, but definitely in the humans we do. Awesome. Okay. The next question here I mentioned was about cardiomyocytes. So this person has asked, have you measured cardiomyocytes following intermittent hypoxia? Since all tissues are exposed to fluctuating patterns of oxygen, could intermittent hypoxia elicit benefits in the periphery in addition to activating neural circuitry? They absolutely could. And that is exactly, we have the tissue now to be able to answer that question, but we have only just finished running those long-term intervention studies with the intermittent hypoxia. So, and we have more that are ongoing in the next couple of months. So we're not yet in a position to answer that, but we've absolutely got some tissue ready to answer that question and we'll be answering that in the future. So yeah, great question. Fantastic. Awesome. Okay. Next question here. Have you tested dobutamine effects in your chronic rat model of spinal cord injury? And do the hearts still have the capacity to increase contractility? Yes, that is a great question as well. We have tested it. We've done it in a few different ways. Probably some of the, the easiest and most straightforward is where we've just done dose response dobutamine infusions in chronic rats. We did this almost to try and mimic an exercise response. A lot of people use dobutamine for that reason. And what we actually find is, yes, indeed, the heart can still mount a contractile response 
actually for a given dose of dobutamine, at least at the low dose end, the cardiac beta receptors seem to almost hyper-respond or over-respond to that stimulus. Whether the magnitude is normal, is the increase with dobutamine the same as in an uninjured rat? We've not yet answered that in the rats, but we have answered that in the pig model. And in the pig model, at least, if you go 12 weeks out after injury and you give measure N-systolic elastins pre and post dobutamine infusion, then the heart reduces, there is a reduced maximal pressure generating capacity in the chronic pig setting. We've been working on some ways to try and normalize that with different hemodynamic management strategies. But yes, in the pigs that happens, in the rat, at least what we've seen so far, that doesn't seem to happen to the same degree, albeit that we've not been able to measure N-systolic elastins pre and post dobutamine infusions in the rat. That is extremely technically challenging to do because as you deliver the dobutamine, you tend to get a bit of a peaking on the upper left corner of your pressure volume loop due to the increase in contractility. And that can confound some of your measurements of N-systolic elastin. So it makes it technically challenging to do. The pig doesn't have that same limitation. So it's actually an easier question to answer there. hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you'll tune in to future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work, offer tips, tricks, and best practices, but most of all, share science. Don't forget to subscribe.